he's managed very remarkably and successfully and I maybe even uniquely in the world to build his brand as a politician, as an anti-corruption fighter through these, you know, anti-corruption investigations. The conversation, especially in international media coverage, often frames protests in Russia as like, here's the thing that leads to the revolution. You can say, I hate Putin, but that doesn't diminish the credibility of what you found because you're just pointing to the documents. The next step from that is corruption isn't bad because it makes a few people rich. It's bad because it makes you poor. Medusa news editor Eilish Hart, and you're listening to the third episode of The Naked Pravda produced by yours truly. I'm happy to report that I've finally put together an episode that's actually about events in Russia. As you've probably heard, opposition politician Alexei Navalny was sentenced to nearly three years in prison on February 2nd. This comes just weeks after he returned to Russia from Germany, where he was recovering for nearly five months following an attempt on his life in August 2020. There are already several episodes of The Naked Pravda about Navalny's saga, so be sure to check those out. This time around, I wanted to take a dive into his anti-corruption work and impact on politics in Russia more broadly. I interviewed two guests earlier this week who were able to shed a lot of light on Navalny's role as an anti-corruption investigator and as a political figure. Every article you read about this verdict and what's been happening since Navalny's return kind of goes through the painstaking effort of explaining what the case is about and how this is a conviction from 2014. But I feel like we go through all these details, but the the details are kind of pointless, so they don't really matter. That's Yana Gorohovskaya an independent researcher who focuses on politics and civil society in Russia. I interviewed Yana on Tuesday night, just hours after Navalny was sentenced. So yes, turning his suspended sentence into a real sentence, that's what happened today. But really, these legal details don't matter. We knew that he was going to be arrested on his return. We knew that he was going to be convicted. We knew exactly what was going to happen. I don't think that makes what happened less disappointing, less sad, less shocking, but we knew that Navalny was going to to penal colony. I think the sad part of it is that right now he, you know, the timeline is that he'll be let out in October of 2023, but that's less than six months before the next presidential election, which seems highly unlikely to me that he would be set free kind of right at the run up to the election. So I feel like the worst is yet to come with this stuff and Navalny is kind of legal future. As we were talking about Navalny's day in court, protesters in Moscow and St. Petersburg were calling for his release. These demonstrations on February 2nd were the third pro-Navalny rallies to take place in the past two weeks. People protested in cities across Russia on January 23rd and 31st, and the demonstrations were met with a police crackdown. So I asked Yana to weigh in on the protest movement and the official response. So what's old and what's new about these protests? So I think kind of the conversation, especially in in international media coverage often frames protests in Russia as like, here's the thing that leads to the revolution. And the problem with that framing is not only that it's, you know, not accurate, but also it assumes that protests are like the super rare thing in Russia. And they're not They're That's just not true. You know, I saw data from 2019 that said there was something like 1600 protests across Russia in 2019. You know, so the protests definitely aren't new. The fact that they're unsanctioned is definitely not new. What's new? 
what's new is the repression. And I do really strongly feel that that's, that's a new element. So there's like a repression toolkit that the Russian authorities have, right? So you deny permits. Then you have a media message that says, this is destructive, this is disruptive, this is foreign funded. Then you pressure, you know, university administrators and teachers and employers to tell people not to come out. Then you arrest all the top leadership and any potential organizers for some period of time, right? And then you, um, you know, kick the crap out of anyone who comes out to demonstrate that you're you're putting yourself in physical harm. So all of that stuff has already has happened before and it happened this time. But the securitization of space in Moscow and St. Petersburg, right? Those images that we saw from, from, la- from last weekend, but also today, of just huge amounts of riot police blocking off whole boulevards, closing down subway stations, you know, seven central subway stations in Moscow were closed on Sunday. That's new. That kind of securitize- securitization of space is absolutely new. And to me, it speaks of a perception of threat from these protests that I don't necessarily, and I haven't necessarily seen in the past. Like there's always a reaction from the government, obviously, and they're always kind of policing the crowds, but this kind of, you know, this kind of closing off of space, it just hasn't happened before. Before, when they needed to close off space to protesters, they announced some kind of like emergency repair or a, a competing festival or, you know, something kind of laughable like this. This was, this was they put in checkpoints and closed the city center of a city that has 12 million people completely down for a day. So that's that to me is um, radically new. And just the number of arrests we saw, right? There was like 5,500 Sunday, over 4,000 the weekend before. There's over 1,000 today. Those are big numbers. Those are legitimately big numbers. Do you think the police violence or the official reaction, does that I mean, we're we're speculating here, but do you think that has the potential to mobilize more people or do you think it will kind of effectively deter further protests? So this is kind of like, is this the Belarus scenario question, right? Are we seeing Belarus play out where we had a situation in which the repression of protests actually kind of uh, made people come together around kind of a moral consensus? I think that's hard to say. One of the real, really big problems with mobilizing people right now in Russia, as opposed to what was happening in Belarus or what is happening in Belarus, is that in Belarus, there was a stone election, which was a harm against kind of everyone in the population, right? Everyone who voted, that election was stolen. This is a more specific harm and it's harder, I think, to mobilize people around it. So even if you kind of move beyond like Novali, the man, you know, and what's happening to him, that's unjust. You know, the anti-corruption message, I'm still convinced by the fact that the anti-corruption message, I think, is kind of a mobilizing message in Russia, but it's not mobilizing to the same degree as a stolen election is. And so, you know, whether or not there'll be more protests, I, I think, you know, Sam Green made this observation on Twitter earlier today saying that, you know, just because Navalny is out of the picture for some time, you know, for some period of time doesn't mean that things will just die down. And I agree with that because I think one of the biggest contributions Navalny has made to the kind of political space in Russia is to open these offices across the country, these offices he opened in 2017, 2018, when he was trying to run for president and that have kept going. And right now they're very centralized and controlled kind of top down, but they have the potential to work independently. And so, you know, if they continue working and continue kind of educating people and providing tools for people to be politically engaged, then those are themselves spaces or places that can organize protests. So, you know, the police violence might not 
produce kind of this moral consensus, but that doesn't necessarily mean that there would be less protest going forward. From there, let's step back and and talk about Navalny's politics more broadly and his anti-corruption stance, which I think has, he kind of couches his concerns as economic ones rather than framing issues as like ideological or moral. How would you place Navalny in terms of how his politics have evolved? For me, uh, he is a populist, I would say. And that doesn't mean that he's willing to kind of cater to whatever kind of prevailing whim happens to be out there. But I do think that he incorporates lots of different ideas in society and kind of lots of different political perspectives into his rather large umbrella of a platform, the main thrust of which is still anti-corruption, right? I mean, his whole initial, you know, point one, two and three in every platform and every kind of talk he gives about politics is that Russia is an inherently rich country. And the only reason that people are poor and that the only reason that the economic situation is getting worse over the last decade is because of corruption, right? And then the next step from that is corruption isn't bad because it makes a few people rich. It's bad because it makes you poor. And so once we get rid of corruption, then we can do all these other things, right? Like we'll pay judges more, we'll, we'll you know, lift taxes from small businesses, we'll institute a minimum wage, all of these things. He talks about kind of siphoning resources that are now wasted on corruption back into Russia. The other parts of his platform, they all sound really middle of the road and reasonable, you know, better healthcare, better education, kind of reattaining Russia's place in terms of like the le- leadership in science, like all of these things I wouldn't say are too far to the left or too far to the right. They're sort of middle of the road. And they, the, you know, the, as I said, the first general thrust is we're going, we're going to keep this money inside the country. We're not going to let oligarchs, you know, have all these offshore riches. We're going to funnel the money that Russia has back into Russians. making combating corruption a key plank in his political platform, Navalny is the founder of a nonprofit called the Anti-Corruption Foundation, which exposes corruption schemes among high-level government officials in Russia. To find out more about Navalny's investigative work, I turned to Ilya Lazovsky, a senior editor at the Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Project. I read the article that you wrote for OCCRP immediately after Navalny was poisoned in August. So my first question was, what kind of compelled you to write about his anti-corruption work at that moment? I think my initial reaction was sort of an emotional one. I mean, I was really upset to hear what had happened and I was worried for his life. And I'd followed him for a long time myself. I mean, I was reading Navalny back when he was like a blogger on live journal basically so there was a personal element but i also knew that you know the whole world was sort of paying attention and it was a good opportunity to get across some of what i think is most interesting and maybe unique about him and so that's why i wanted to emphasize his investigative work which i had to sort of tread a fine line and i'm sure you know this was part of the point of this conversation is you know i should I call him a journalist? Should I not? And I think different people could land in different places. But I would say that he is a politician who does something that looks very much like investigative journalism. And it looks so much like what we do at OCCRP in some ways that um, it was kind of a way of, you know, emphasizing the 
importance and the place that this kind of investigation has in a society. But certainly it's more complicated than saying Navalny is a great investigative journalist because I would not call him that. That was actually going to be my next question was, do you consider what they do investigative journalism? But I mean, you've kind of answered it already. So I guess what about it is not investigative journalism? I think the whole point of thinking carefully about what it is that Navalny does is so we can say, well, there's some things he does differently than an investigative journalist would. And there are reasons for that. But let me say first, what does look like investigative journalism? And this is sort of at the heart of what we do. A, a lot of his findings are based on actual documents. So he uses um, documented sources to expose previously hidden things, you know, mostly involving money, crime and corruption, and shows people how his country really works, you know, away from the public's eyes or where many Russian journalists can't show them. So that is the essence of investigative journalism in many ways, is revealing something unknown using documented sources. And he's really good at um, simplifying, explaining these things in a readily understandable way. And, you know, his videos are very slick and very well produced. And he, you know, points to this part of the screen and there's a little company icon and then there's a guy here and he shows the connection. So and then the the documents will pop up. So it's all like super well done. And he often goes back to the documents to just really prove, you know, it's not just populist ranting about how Putin is evil and how he's corrupt and how Navalny's really represents real Russia. It's really based on trying to convince the viewer. I also really like that he explains the significance of what he's finding. That's something that many investigative journalists struggle with in some ways, because it's easy to show, well, not easy, but it's sort of normal for an investigative journalist to say, you know, look at this mansion or palace. Here's, you know, here's the company that owns it. Here's the owner, or it's owned by this offshore company. And then we traced it back to here. And it gets very technical. And Navalny's really good at floating over like that, those technical areas and really explaining the significance in terms of Russian life and Russian politics and why his, his viewers should care about that. But that's where we start getting into the area of things that are hard for investigative journalists to do. We sometimes struggle with that kind of analysis or interpretation because then you're getting away from purely what's shown in the documents and you're putting your own spin on it that you could be accused of being biased, you could be accused of being political. And I think every news organization follows different guidelines or tries to find its own way of being convincing to readers. I'm personally a believer in adding analysis to any investigative story to show readers why they should care that these complex schemes are built and continue to exist. And I think that, um, you know, there's a big debate in the U.S. media about how much should journalists reveal their political views. And I think that, um, you know, people come on, come down on different sides of that question. I might come down where it's okay to say what your political views are as long as it doesn't affect your work. And if you're doing investigative work and it really is based on documents and you prove every single point in your sort of chain of logic that you're trying to prove, then even if people do think you're political, you're pointing to the proof. So, you know, you can say, I hate Putin, but that doesn't diminish the credibility of what you found because you're just pointing to the documents. But the way Navalny does it, it's probably beyond, it's beyond where most journalists would feel comfortable in terms of 
you know, he he's funny. He calls people names. You know, famously, he basically invented that uh, the party of crooks and thieves as a name for a united Russia. He calls Putin all sorts of things. You know, grandpa in the bunker, all kinds of things that you wouldn't want to do as a journalist. You know, he's insulting sometimes. And he has a lot of personality. And I've noticed that all of his investigations, or at least the ones I've seen, come in the first person. So either in a video, it's him talking and talking in the first person, but even his his written materials, his blog posts and his long texts that accompany the videos, they're also very often told from like an I point of view, which again, this is where we get into, well, why is he doing this? It's because he's a politician and he's managed very remarkably and successfully and I maybe even uniquely in the world to build his brand as a politician, as an anti-corruption fighter through these, you know, anti-corruption investigations. To continue on the topic of, you know, what he does that maybe we couldn't do, there's, even with this latest really big investigation on Putin's palace, you know, it's a two-hour long video, it has remarkable over 100 million views at this point, but he sort of very cleverly gathers circumstantial evidence and insinuates that it's Putin's palace. There's nowhere you'll find the name Putin anywhere on the documents. You know, you can't say the palace belongs to Putin. And I think it's legit what he's doing, which is assembling all the evidence that exists. You know, the fact that it's guarded by the FSB, the fact that there's a no-fly zone, the fact that every all the companies involved are traced back to Putin's old friends. But it doesn't really add up to saying Putin owns the palace. And so if we were doing that kind of investigation, we would have to couch it probably more as like, well... There's this mysterious palace, and clearly there's a lot of schemes going on around it. Whether we could in the end come to the conclusion and say this is Putin's palace, or we could maybe would have to sort of leave readers to make that leap, you know, that's where we would differ, and that's where Navalny feels free to go beyond the journalistic norms. Another point I would mention, again, in that latest investigation is how he his team used uh, the blueprints they found to make 3D mock-ups of the interior of the palace um, because they didn't have a lot of good photographs. A few photographs have popped up here and there on the internet from workers, but you know nobody has great photographs of the interior. So obviously, it's obvious why he does it. You know, he's trying to make the case to Russian citizens that this is what Putin does. He's concluded that it's Putin's palace and he marshals a lot of evidence for it and you have to show them something. You know, his main format is video, but he didn't have anything so he made, you know, he made the 3D mock-ups and you can see as a storytelling device why they're great and, you know, I'm sure they're not entirely inaccurate, but they are, but I've saw a lot of people mistaking them for actual photographs and people saying, oh my God, Navalny had somebody on the inside on the palace. You know, um, I think that opens you to criticism. And of course, the other obvious place for them to push back is to say, well, when you're reading the investigation ask or watching it, ask yourself, what does this have to do with Putin? You know, they keep pointing to the fact that Putin's name isn't on anything. And of course, that's how the system works. And that's what Navalny is trying to show. But it puts you as a journalist in a very difficult position that Navalny is able to overcome by sort of referring to, you know, again, he is not a journalist, he's not supposed to be unbiased, and he's very open about this, and his team is very open about this. Do you think the way that Navalny's work, you know, looks like investigative journalism, do you think it affects how people think of investigative journalism? It's an interesting question. I think it sucks up a lot of the oxygen because it's so sensational and because he's so prominent. And because of, you know, some of the things I mentioned earlier, it's hard for uh, an investigative journalist to make an equally compelling case a lot of the time. 
So I think that to some extent, it's a competition for viewers' attention. And to the extent that people are watching Navalny, you know, maybe it's harder to notice some of the more technical, less sensational investigations. But, you know, Russian, it's a common trope that, you know, you can't trust Russian journalism or that Russian, it's all pro-regime or whatever. But there's a lot of, you know, really great investigative outlets in Russia and they do have readership. You know, Nova Gazeta was famous for that. And our our member center, iStories, Important Stories in Russia is... Um, you know, I mean, they're doing top shelf work and project media. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of them. Of course, they don't have the same viewership as television. And Navalny is very understandably trying to break through to a larger audience. So I think that, you know, whether it's strictly speaking journalism or not, content like this is always on a spectrum where the more careful and technical you are, the harder it is for the average citizen of the country to encounter it and to understand it and it's always a challenge that and as you as you get simpler more maybe cutting some corners in the narrative trying to your best to tell a good story then you start to get a wider audience but then it becomes less strictly speaking you know investigative journalism so navalny exists one place on that spectrum russian investigative journalists exist on a different place in that spectrum mostly i think it's hard you know it's it's hard to get the same viewership Navalny's anti-corruption work isn't the only thing that's opened him up to criticism. In the past, he's come under fire for aligning himself with nationalist groups, expressing anti-migrant views, and for making xenophobic and racist comments. Moreover, he hasn't renounced any of his past statements. In an interview with the German newspaper Der Spiegel in October 2020, he even maintained that he holds the same views as when he first went into politics. Yeah, so this is the great, is Navalny Nelson Mandela or is he a racist debate? A couple of things strike me about this. First of all, I'd say that this is a debate that is being had in English language media and by English language Russian watchers. I haven't seen it as much of a, a prominent debate among Russians or Russian language commentary. There is like a hardcore group of Russian liberals who very much despise Navalny based on these previous comments, these nationalistic, xenophobic, racist comments. But it's not like an, it's not a prevailing theme in conversation in Russia among Russians. And I think to a degree, it's because what he is being put on trial, being arrested for, being persecuted for isn't related to that at all. So that's the first point I'd make. I think that's a predominant narrative in media analysis and coverage outside Russia, unlike inside Russia. The second thing I'll say is he definitely hasn't renounced his comments. And in fact, you know, his presidential platform, he still stands by visa controls, right? He wants a visa regime with Central Asian states, and he has never backed off of that, nor has he ever retracted what he said about Crimea, right? He's he. He sees the annexation of Crimea as a violation of international law, but he does not um, see a path forward to returning Crimea back to Ukraine. 
So he hasn't renounced those things, I think, because he doesn't see them as a liability. I think some of the more radical comments that he's made maybe were a liability. I was in Moscow in 2013 when he was running for mayor, and I went to his stump speeches. I made an effort to go. He made three three a day at the height of his campaign, and they were always almost exactly the same. So he would talk about kind of his platform, then he would talk about corruption and mismanagement of metro development, and then he would talk about petty crime being perpetrated and how people didn't feel safe. And that's the part of it that often skewed into this, you know, um, anti-migrant kind of racist overtones. So that was definitely present in 2013 when he was running for mayor. And then that fall, there was a major riot in a northern suburb of Moscow because a young man was stabbed to death by another man from Central Asia. They had some dispute over a, a girlfriend. And residents of that neighborhood raided a fruit and vegetable market that was run by Central Asian uh, migrants. They raided it and there was a lot of violence. And Navalny wrote on his blog that the reason people took matters into their own hands was that the police and the city authorities were taking bribes from the people who ran this market to keep the market open. So this was an illegal structure. And because of bribery and corruption, it had been kept open. So going back to this, you know, linking everything to anti-corruption. But then he went on to say, and what do you expect? You think these people are just going to stay in their little part of the city? No, they're going to, they're going to, I think he used a phrase like they're going to crawl out like insects and infect the other, you know, neighboring neighborhoods and things like that. But then he kind of came back to anti-corruption again. So even then this sentiment about, you know, this racist kind of rhetoric was wrapped up into this broader message of anti-corruption. So, I mean, what do I personally think about it? I think, I think, Navalny is not a liberal in the Western mold of liberals. And we, we have to accept that. And, you know, maybe being a Democrat is better than being a Western liberal, if that's your choice, kind of looking forward, looking at what's happening in Russia. I think it's a legitimate question, but often I think it speaks more to what's happening in Europe or America or Canada in terms of kind of rhetoric around politics and what's what's happening in our own politics and less about what's happening in Russian politics. Criticism um, about Navalny kind of takes us nicely into like the other big Russia watcher debate, which is like, does Navalny really matter to Russians? And, you know, has he really changed Russian politics? The answer to the first question is we don't know. We don't know because there aren't surveys directly targeted towards his supporters. So we don't actually know what Navalny's base or ceiling of support is in Russia. We know that his name recognition is growing, and I would imagine that's gone up even more now. The last survey I saw was from September, and he had about 20% of people surveyed said they recognized, you know, they had heard of him. Very few approved of his activities, but more people had heard of him. So if we looked at maybe eight years ago, something like 2% of people had ever heard of him. So, so that's a big improvement. And I would imagine it has gone up only because the Russian state media has broken its own taboo and actually talks about him now. So his name recognition is probably going to go up even more. But it, it doesn't change the fact that he is very much hampered by the propaganda that has now for years been spun around him about him being, you know, a CIA agent and a foreign plant and all this other stuff. And we can see the results of that in that same, I think it was a Levada survey that talked about how, you know, something like, 60% of people thought that he poisoned himself or that this was some kind of plot. You know, they didn't believe that he was poisoned by the government. So that's really significant because he, I mean, you know, the Bellingcat investigation and his phone call were pretty damning uh, in terms of demonstrating that he definitely didn't poison himself. So 
does he matter to Russians? I think that he he is competing with one hand tied behind his back, and that has had an effect on how much he matters to the ordinary Russian. I think if he his hands were untied and he was competing in free elections and he was able to muster, you know, he was able to kind of publicize his platform more widely, he would matter to more Russians. So that's that question. Does he matter to Russian politics? For that question, I'd say absolutely he matters to Russian politics. I think that he has radically changed Russian politics in really significant ways over the last decade. And I'll give you a couple of examples. So one, he is incredibly well-spoken and well-written and charismatic, but he also has this, you know, kind of jargon element, like he has really nice turns of phrase. So the one that he's he's making, you know, popular popularizing now is the old man in the bunker shaking from fear. But the more famous one is United Russia's Party of Crooks and Thieves. And he said that offhandedly, offhandedly in a radio interview in 2011. And it has stuck, right? It has really stuck. It has stuck both nationally, internationally. It's mentioned all the time. So his way of communicating, I think, has made a difference and has sort of infected the, the political discourse. I think the second way he's made a difference is through his anti-corruption investigations, and more specifically, the slick packaging of them, right? His YouTube channel. I mean, it's got like 6 million subscribers now. It dwarfs uh, kind of Russian state outlets that are on YouTube. And you see that it's being copied or mirrored by other political commentators, aspiring politicians, you know, it's a really effective way of getting your message out because they present something that is actually pretty boring in a really compelling kind of way. And you sit there and it's like, it's two hours, but you're going to watch the whole thing. So I think bypassing state media, moving to the internet, producing these really slick videos with high production values, that's had an impact on how political messaging happens in Russia and how, and maybe how even young Russians want to be messaged, right? How they expect to be messaged, which might make the work of like systemic parties that much harder in kind of trying to win over new voters because they're not as good at this. And then the third way I think he's changed Russian politics is, you know, the establishment of these, this network of regional offices, I think is a slow burn development that we're going to see the results of from, you know, years down the road. We already kind of see it in people like Lyubov Sobo, you know, people who come up through his organization who have a political persona of their own. But these regional organizations, these regional offices are helping young people, politically interested young people develop skills, campaigning, producing campaign literature, making videos, having contact with the voters, all of these things that are super important. And that in an authoritarian state where elections don't really matter, you're not going to get that experience anywhere except Navalny because Navalny has to build that kind of support because he's not he doesn't have the institutional support. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't have the, you know, the kind of resources from the state. So, I think though in those three ways, in his rhetoric, in his packaging of his political kind of material, his exposés, and in establishing these offices that are training kind of the next generation of Russian politicians in democratic practices, I think these are fundamentally important and have altered Russian politics. But they're not, they're not immediately obvious, right? We have to wait for the, for the effects. Russia will be free. Russia will be free. 
I also asked Ilya to weigh in on the broader impact of the investigations Navalny's Anti-Corruption Foundation produces. He's not a one-hit wonder with this Putin's palace. You know, he's built a reputation over years and years as uncovering Russian corruption, and he understands how the system works. And he's also, I think, partly because of this, he's gained the credibility also in the West to be able to ask for things like, you know, he came out with this letter, you know, Biden administration, please sanction these guys. And that's a pretty gutsy thing to do, I think, and it remains to be seen how that will play. But, you know, there are a lot of transparency advocates and sort of anti-corruption activists who point to Navalny and saying, look, he's pointing out how the wealth of the regime is stored around the world using the Western, you know, world financial system, and we need to put a stop to this. So he's become a kind of a big figure and inspiration for people working to you know, on this London and New York based world industry of people who service these, this ecosystem of offshore companies. And we write about that all the time. That's one of our main things. The lawyers, the accounting firms, you know, the Panama Papers came from this. So I think Navalny, on a global stage, I think Navalny has really become a champion for reforming the system that allows people in Russia and anywhere in the world to steal, you know, from their, from their people and then park it somewhere halfway across the world. So in terms of his stature, both in Russia and internationally, I think it's just kept growing and growing as he's been doing these investigations. And certainly now he's elevated himself to a level he's never been at before. So we'll have to see what happens. What about like in terms of getting an official response out of Russian officials? Because I think like everyone thought it was huge that Putin actually commented on the palace. But I think like most of the time when an investigation comes out, not necessarily from Navalny, but just like a corruption investigation in general in Russian journalism, kind of the official response is silence. Um. (laughs) Yeah, I think that shows the level that this has risen to where they can't just wave him away anymore. You know, Putin had all these ridiculous ways of, you know, the blogger, he called him the Berlin patient. And I mean, this kind of like ridiculous stuff. And I think they're finally at a point now where you can't really do that anymore. So I think it's true, you know, sort of the consensus I would say is that this shows that Putin can't afford to just wave him away anymore because this is so stark and so popular and it's agenda setting. I'm more ambivalent about claims that, oh, this shows Putin is scared. You know, look at only, you know, people say only a weak leader would send all these troops onto the street. And, you know, I mean, I guess rhetorically, that's a good thing for opposition people to say that Putin is scared. Maybe it'll inspire people. But I'm afraid that, in fact, this latest wave of protest is being managed quite skillfully from the Kremlin. On the other hand, why is Navalny suddenly vaulted to this stratospheric level where he's basically the number one opposition politician? It's because of the persecution that the system has, you know, tried to kill him and then driven him out of the country and then, you know, imprisoned him as soon as he came back. I mean, you can't say these are all brilliant strategic moves. So I don't really claim to know what the Kremlin is thinking, but I agree that that it's a sign that Devalny has raised himself up to the level where he can't He's now an interlocutor with Putin. But I guess that speaks more to, again, like Navalny as a figure rather than the investigative work. Yeah. And that's, again, we come back to the fact that he's a politician first and foremost. And this is investigative stuff is a tool that he uses. And he's very open about this. No, I don't think the Kremlin would be responding even to a massive investigation from a, you know, some newspaper somewhere. But this is, but but Navalny is clear that he has political ambitions and he's built himself up to this level and he's now getting responses. 
if we zoom out from just what's happening to Navalny, the way I see it, the persecution of him and his team kind of seems to be fitting into a sort of broader crackdown on civil society and activism of all kinds. So how do you see it fitting together? So Navalny, I don't, I definitely don't think is a single case. He is singularly punished in an extreme way because he's an example. But you're absolutely right to say that, yeah, so the trajectory, the trend in in Russia over the last five years has been a growing restriction on civil society, with the caveat to say not all civil society, right? So what we are seeing fundamentally in Russia is a branching of civil society. It's an effort by the state to create the kind of civil society that is most useful to it and to crowd out the rest. So to a degree, all states shape civil society, right? So we often, you know, people who are interested in democratic development often look at how civil society helps to, to, you know, check power and act as a balance and all these other things. But the reality is that states shape civil society lots of different ways. But what Russia is doing is not only restricting political civil society, so civil society that is focused on human rights or civil and political rights. It's also creating infrastructure for social civil society, right? The so-called socially oriented civil society organizations that fill in the gaps of a state in terms of providing social services. And for that part of civil society, Russia has organized funding. It has connected all kinds of networks. It has Um, connected those groups with government structures to make them more effective. And we can't say that those organizations aren't civil society. I mean, they are. They're civil society in the same way that, you know, here in the U.S., you say Feeding America is a civil society organization. It's not political, but it is civil society, right? It's a part of civil society. So the same thing happens in Russia. There's all these organizations that help children, that work on education. They help the disabled. They help pensioners. That's part of civil society. But they are positioned in parallel to the state, not in opposition to it. And I know that people, you know, academics who research that part of civil society do kind of push the people they interview to talk about, you know, their relationship with the state. And often it's a critical relationship. So they are critical of the state. They're not, you know, you know, they they see it for what it is. But their point is to kind of solve the social issue they're working on. And if they have to work with the state, they're fine with that. On the other hand, you have groups like, say, LGBTQ groups, right? LGBTQ groups in Russia are now in a really tight space because state policies, the entire kind of rhetoric of the state is directed against their mission. So if their mission is equality and legal protection and legal representation for this particular group, the government has gone out of its way to say, those are not things that are going to happen here. And so their space has definitely been been shrinking. And Navalny, obviously, I think, you know, the FBK and all his organization fall into that sector, the political sector of civil society, for which, you know, the space has really shrunk and they have been severely restricted in their activities. But I think, you know, in this theme of like stepping back and looking at this more broadly, the trend has been more centralization and more repression, even more broadly speaking, when we're not talking about civil society. So if we go back, you know, the most attention of the constitutional reforms, you know, the amendment that received the most attention was the presidential term limits amendment. But the constitutional reforms also took away judicial independence on the Supreme and constitutional courts. And they asserted the supremacy of Russian law as opposed to international law, which makes it much easier to ignore rulings by the ECHR, uh, such as the one that ruled that Navalny was targeted through this prosecution that he's been sentenced to now. So those are all, again, 
changes made to the Russian legal system that make it harder for unsanctioned or outside political and social forces to have any impact on politics, number one, but then also society, I think, more broadly. You've been listening to The Naked Pravda, an English language podcast from Medusa. It's our only English language show, and I hope you recommend us to your friends and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are tuning in. You can help put this program in front of more people. Thank you for listening and come back soon. <laughs>